On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On March 3rd, 2019, ITV News released an interview with a woman who had fled the last patch of ISIS-controlled territory in Syria. She left with all she has, her son and a few bags of belongings. Her dream of a utopian Islamic state has disappeared behind her. Despite her claims that she was British, the woman spoke with an Irish accent, moving between Arabic and English as she answered the reporter's questions. I, I come by myself. I marry the man here. I don't marry before. Who are Muslim? Almost a week after that video emerged, the woman who had left Bagus with her two-year-old child was revealed by the Irish Independent to be Lisa Smith. The Defence Forces has said it is awaiting confirmation on the identity of an Irish citizen who has been detained in Syria, accused of fighting for ISIS. Gardaí have made contact with the family of Lisa Smith, a former soldier from Dundalk, who travelled to the Middle East a number of years ago after being radicalised. As plans to repatriate the Dundalk woman began, questions were raised about what she had done in Syria and whether she posed a national security threat here at home. For the woman who had left Ireland in 2015 to search for a caliphate, her journey would end in the Special Criminal Court in Dublin, facing charges of financing terrorism and membership of ISIS. I'm Kevin Doyle and this is part two of an Indo-Daily special on the extraordinary story of Lisa Smith, from government jet to ISIS bride. And joining me are Irish independent correspondents Catherine Fegan and Robin Schiller, who've been covering the story from day one. When Lisa Smith left for Syria in 2015, it would take four years for her secret life there to become common knowledge back home. At the time that she left, the conflict was already a major international story. A brutal regime, a country filled with violence. The debt toll was escalating into the hundreds of thousands. Islamic State and other groups were involved in widespread violations of human rights. There was the targeting of civilians, kidnappings, executions. And Robin, this is the world that Lisa Smith knowingly stepped into. 
Yeah, and it's uh, the world she only stepped into for a second time. So in, we know now that in October 2015, she crossed the border once again into Syria and went through this usual security screening process where her phone settings were changed, her devices were sw- swapped around, and the money she'd saved up while in Ireland was taken off her, which is around €7,000, and she was placed into what's called a Madafa, which is essentially a, a boarding house for women, for single women and for women who've just recently crossed the border, who may be Westerners coming in and you know they're kind of screened and made sure they're not spotted or anything that may harm the Islamic State. And Lisa Smith described that as a prison at times, but also said there was a bit of camaraderie with her and the other 50 or 60 women there. But she eventually wanted out. And around six months later, in March 2016, John Georgelis, who we've mentioned several times before, seems to effectively swoop in and uh, rescue her from this Madafa. And it shows, I think, the influence he had with IS that he was able to pull Lisa Smith out of that Madafa and bring her back to him and his new wife. Perhaps the influence that Lisa Smith had with John Georgeless. And what's missing, Robin, from what you're describing there is the Tunisian husband who, Catherine, you've told us that she married after leaving Syria the first time. Yes, the Tunisian Ahmed was Lisa Smith's third husband. He had been an Al-Qaeda fighter, obviously exposed to, to huge levels of violence himself. But even he wasn't prepared to go to Syria and live under Islamic State rule. And he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going with you. Apparently he was very in love with her and really wanted to stay with her and hoped that, that she would, you know, go with him. But she decided that... Uh, it was more important for her to be to answer the call for the caliphate than to stay with him. So that marriage ended. So she finds herself back in Syria, and she she weds her fourth husband, who was a Pakistani a British man called Sajid Aslam, and his first wife was Lorna Moore from Tyrone. Now he, at the time Lisa was with him, was working um, as a border patrol soldier for uh, Islamic State and. We know that she had encouraged, Lisa had encouraged him to do a sniper's course at one point. So that was her fourth and final marriage. The two of them were living together in Waka and they had a daughter together. And Robin, what do we know from what you heard at the trial about what Lisa Smith saw or the lived experience that she had while in Syria? Well, she described it for what it was, which was essentially a war zone. A big plane came and just... Right beside the Madafa, I was in boom, 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 big bombs, you know. I was sh- shaking, you know. I was like, what is this, you know. I didn't realise that this was going to be like like this, you know. I didn't think it was going to be bombs. You know, she told of how people were being attacked with cluster bombs, with bullets. She witnessed people getting shot in the street, babies dying. An American journalist has been beheaded by ISIS terrorists. The severed heads of soldiers were displayed in public. In March 2015, purport to show a man being thrown from a building. And saw people with you know serious injuries being hospitalised. And she also denied that she had any involvement in this conflict. She said she never used a weapon. She only stayed at home, cooked and cleaned. And that um, it was a mistake essentially going to the country. And the other aspect was her kind of home life at the time as well. She'd say how Sajid Aslam, her fourth husband, was very violent towards her. He used to beat her. He wouldn't let her do very much. She wasn't allowed to watch videos, use the internet any of this kind of stuff and there's also a fairly emotional aspect in the court itself when you know Lisa Smith was in her Garda interviews describing you know attempting to have children several times and having miscarriages and it's one of the few times in the court we actually saw her getting very emotional about her life over there and it's obviously very hard to see and this is the kind of personal aspect to Lisa Smith's life as well apart from the obviously the war zone aspect and the alleged ISIS involvement. She has insisted and did in all her Garda interviews and in media interviews that 
She really was a housewife. That was her entire role in the caliphate while she was over there. But there were allegations or suggestions that actually she used her own knowledge from her defence forces training and that she was helping young girls to learn how to use weaponry. You trained girls aged maybe nine to 12. So not true. It's not true. So not true. So why do you think those, those girls, why do you think they're saying that? Because they say, they don't just say that they learned, they say that it was you that taught them. Bring these girls to my face when we all sit here and they can see my face and we'd speak and we will see the truth. Why do you think they're saying that about you? I don't know. Do you think it's the military background? No, no, because not a lot of people actually know I was in the military. Yeah, and this was a key focus of both the Guard investigation and FBI agents investigating her. Now we know that she was visited twice while she was in a camp, a prisoner camp essentially in Syria, by the FBI who interviewed her. And those FBI agents gave evidence and they said it was beyond suspicion that she was involved in IS. And there was also suggestions that she was used to recruit people for the Katiba, which is an all-female wing of IS. And even Gardy and sworn affidavits to courts in Ireland said that they did investigate her for recruiting and training people for OIS. Now we have to remember that she hasn't been charged with this at all, but it was a key part of the Guard investigation if she was actually actively involved in recruiting people for this terror organisation. But whatever about the disputed facts over what happened to Lisa Smith while she was there, we do know that during her time in Syria, the situation becomes more and more unstable and her plan or her dream of living in this caliphate it's starting to unravel. Yeah, it's changed massively since she went over there in 2015. And we know now by March 2018, the Islamic State had lost around 95% of the territory it once claimed, including Mosul and its capital Raqqa. And by in around March 2019, we know that Lisa Smith ends up in Baguz in a camp for uh, displaced people with her young daughter, Rakaya. I remember that... Friday night in March 2019 when I got a tip off that there was an Irish woman trapped in Syria, I think was the first version of the story. And then very quickly, there was reference made to this ITV interview that had uh, a woman speaking that was originally identified as British, but it was pretty clear from listening to the accent, albeit a bit muddled, that she was Irish. And we began the search for what turned out to be Lisa Smith. It was a huge story. It was one of those moments in a newsroom where you just know this is going to be big. And it was late on a Friday night. And I remember I was chasing sources in government and elsewhere. Tom Brady, who's security correspondent at the time, was trying to work through security angles to find out more. And Robin, I remember dispatching you up to Dundalk after we got a sense that the person we were looking for was a smith from Dundalk and you had to go look for that needle in a haystack. Yeah, I had the um, fortune or misfortune, whatever you want to put it, of working that Friday night and myself and Mark Condren were dispatched up to Dundalk and Dundalk, <laughs> being a fairly big town and, you know, we have a second name to go by, it was by no means an easy task and I'd say we must have knocked on about a hundred doors and, you know, talked to dozens of people and in fairness to the people in Dundalk, they're very accommodating, you know, and certain stories when you go up and you're dispatched, they can be very kind of, don't want to say much to talk They much, must have taught you were away with yourself in the dark night, uh, Friday night of March going around looking for an ISIS bride. Yeah, they probably have them presumed they're on an episode of Naked Camera or something like that, you know. It's just such a bizarre kind of thing to hear on a Friday night in the dark and I think the football match is on the town and there was great buzz around the town even for that sense. 
But eventually we kind of made our way to what turned out to be Lisa Smith's house. And we went up to the family home and there was a young lady outside having a cigarette and, you know, introduced myself and said who I was. And she just came out straight away and said, yeah, that's my my relative. You know, I won't go into exactly who she was. But um, yeah, and she spoke away. You know, she didn't want to be named herself, but basically confirmed everything that, you know, the Gardaí, um, local Gardaí and members of the Special Detective Unit had travelled up to the house during the week after seeing the ITV interview to confirm if it was their relative. Um, they confirmed Lisa Smith was, obviously, and there was a few other questions asked. Now, they point blank denied she was any kind of affiliate or member of IS. Um, they said they just wanted her home. They said that they'd made um, contact with different government departments to try get her brought back and, you know, they were hitting a brick wall and just emphatically denied she had any kind of link to IS. And, you know, in one sense, that was obviously a story in the bag and confirmed, but also, you know, show what their family, what they were going through at the time to have kind of, you know, Lisa Smith, their relative, their family member being labelled as a member of IS. It must have been a hard time for them as well, I can imagine. And it, I remember back in Dublin then, in the newsroom, we're trying to sift through and find out as much information about this woman as possible. And we discovered that she had done this interview, which we've talked about, in which she spoke of being a party girl who who then saw the light and, and decided to convert to Islam. And we couldn't believe it. I remember when we found out that she flew on the government jet with Mary McAleese and Bertie Ahern. And you're just thinking, this is a mad story. But Catherine, while all that was happening, and I suppose we ran the front page the next day, the, the, that Saturday morning was the Irish ISIS bride was the front page headline. But it started a chain of events then whereby how did she get home? It was clear now she wanted to get out, she wanted to get back to Ireland, but it threw up all sorts of questions. But the real initial focus was on where she was, that that prison camp, essentially, where she was living at that point. Yes, the Al Hal camp in Bogus is where, you know, Lisa Smith, that, that, that infamous interview that you've just talked about. So it, it's in, it was in the desert on the border between Iraq and Syria, and it was for the displaced um, women and children of this Islamic State. It was originally supposed to be home to about 10,000. There were 80,000 women and children in it at the point um, Lisa Smith was discovered. Very, very cramped conditions, um, um, unsanitary conditions, hot, overcrowded, vast in scale. Um, and there was a, a you know a variation of, of sort of extremes in there. Very, very radicalised women, um, more moderate radicalised women. And it was a very dangerous place um, to be at the time. And I think that's what the concern was here with the Department of Affairs, Foreign Affairs in Ireland, that Yes, Lisa Smith is in here. She's an adult Irish citizen, but she also has a child who's an Irish citizen. This is a really dangerous place in particular for children. She's an Irish citizen. Uh, she's the responsibility of Ireland uh, and we have a, a responsibility towards her and in particular uh, her daughter. So there was a lot of focus, focus on the fact that we had not only an Irish woman, an Irish adult woman, but we had an Irish child in a place that was just so dangerous to be at the time. And it threw up a lot of questions for the Taoiseach at the time, Leo Varadkar, and for ministers, because there were people who felt that Lisa Smith made life choices that brought her to that dangerous place. We have to put the uh, safety and interests of Irish citizens and people living in Ireland um, as the paramount concern in all of this. So uh, should she return, uh, she'd be interviewed. Uh, there would be a security assessment done uh, to make sure she's not a threat to 
others. Uh, but let's never forget that there is a child involved here too and that child is innocent and that child is an Irish citizen. And people didn't know what she was or wasn't involved in. Let's be honest, we still don't fully know what she was or wasn't involved in. So there were people who believed that she should be left there and that she shouldn't be rescued. But the government actually very quickly, Robin, took a different attitude to it because this had been debated in the UK quite a lot and they weren't very keen on bringing home people who had gone over to Syria. But the Irish government was very straight up from the start that they would try and get Lisa Smith back. Yeah, uh, it came clear fairly quickly that you know they were going to avoid a situation like in the UK with Shmima Bingham where she was essentially revoked of her citizenship. And I think Leo Vradkar was one of the first to come out and say that you know she will be returned here. Obviously with the caveat of security assessments being done and the other kind of headache that throws up of diplomatically, how do we get her home? You know, uh, the questions of using the government jet were thrown up and quickly kind of dampened. That wasn't going to happen. There's no chance of that. Conveniently, I think for the government on that one, they, they argued that the government jet wouldn't have been capable of flying to the Middle East and back. Yeah. which got them off the hook than that one. Yeah, um, luckily for them. And, you know, it did take a lot of time, a lot of time to get home. I think it was about nine months. And there was obviously, you know, going through different diplomatic channels. I think the Turk- Turkish officials who did great work, in fairness, and, you know, repatriating Lisa Smith, they also wanted to, you know, interview her and make sure she wasn't a security risk either. And eventually, you know, nine months later in December, we do have a situation where the members of the army ranger wing were sent over dispatch on this kind of close protection thing they do. And eventually, Lisa Smith was returned at the start of December in 2019. And what happened when she got back to Ireland? Because it was freedom in one way, but she was immediately arrested. Yeah, I think she described her time in Syria as four years in prison and she stepped off that jet or that plane in Dublin airport, went down the steps and was immediately arrested by members of the Special Detective Unit. So it was, you know, a short-lived freedom. And she was arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act, which grants them power to detain her for 72 hours. And she was brought to Kevin Street Guard Station straight away. Now her child was taken into care and has been cared for by family members since. But uh, Miss Smith herself was brought to Kevin Street. She was questioned there for 72 hours. And in fairness to her, what's rarely seen, I guess, for people arrested for such a serious offence is that she was very open with the Gardaí interviewing her. She gave detailed accounts of her time in Syria. And the Gardaí built up a good rapport with her as well. They're kind of jokingly, at one stage, during the interview said, you know, she was getting the Dundalk accent back. And they built up a kind of good relationship with her. They're very respectful of her um, religious needs as well during the interviews. But, uh, you know, sticking to their task after 72 hours, she was brought to the district court in Dublin and charged with two offences. Lisa Smith's journey to ISIS has ended for now in a South Dublin police station. And many of those foreigners who left for Syria are likely to follow a similar path home. Lisa Smith was charged with membership of an unlawful terrorist group, namely Islamic State. And it was also alleged that she had at least tried to finance terrorism by sending €800 via Western Union money transfer to a named man in May of 2015. Robin, they're not charges that the court would have been used to in Ireland. It's a very unique case. But the judge decided that she could get bail. Yeah, eventually. She's charged on December 3rd, 2019. And after hearing the court in Dublin, granted her bail with conditions. And one of those conditions was that she had to get an independent surety of €5,000. Essentially, somebody had to put forward 5000 who wasn't her or directly linked to her. And this in itself threw up issues. The person who put forward that surety initially was an individual called Paul Grimes from Loud. And he had a bit of a colourful past. He had a number of convictions at you know district and circuit court level. And the most recent conviction he had at the time and still does to this day 
is assault to Martin Sludden, who would have been the referee of the 2010 Leinster football final when Meath played loud and what was described in court as the famous goal from Joe Sheridan went in to you know, cost loud a famous victory. So Mr. Grimes was you know, one of the people who went onto the pitch that day, assaulted the referee, and because of that conviction and other convictions, the judge at a district court on Christmas Eve in 2019 said that he couldn't be put forward as an independent surety, which caused complications for Miss Smith. She spent Christmas, I'm sure her family would have wanted her home for Christmas, maybe she wouldn't have wanted to be in there, and you know, it took her a few days to actually get out on bail and find a different independent surety. So she has been living uh, in La- in Louth ever since. She has been a free woman. Yeah, since then, I think uh, a couple of weeks later, they secured an independent surety and she's been back in the family home. Now, there is a court order in place, so we can't say exactly where she's living in Louth or in Dundalk even. But, you know, from reports, we've seen that she was welcomed back to a certain extent in the local community. But during the trial, there were kind of hairy moments. I think there was one day... It, was, it wasn't going to sit for about three or four days. And, you know, if a person's in court, they don't have to sign on to local guard station because they're in court. But her defence applied that she doesn't have to sign on as part of her bail conditions because, as they put it, tempers had risen since the trial started. And essentially she was being abused walking down to Dundalk Town while doing her shopping or signing on. And there was kind of concerns about her in that regard. So, you know, while in her ex- precise locality she might have been welcomed back to a certain extent certainly there was a there was a lot of anger towards her in the town of Dundalk and Catherine it was decided that she would be tried in the special criminal court why was that so the special criminal court is a three judge criminal court and it deals with terrorist and organized crime cases you would see the likes of trials for IRA membership and gangland crimes tried there. There's no jury. Like I said, it's a three-judge court and that's to avoid the jury intimidation. So this is where it was decided that the um, Lisa Smith trial would be heard. It was involving um, issues associated with national security and allegations of, of, of terror links. So we had Lisa Smith come into court um, in the special criminal court on a daily basis, dressed in her hijab, passing through heavy security to go into court to, to, to hear her case being tried. And Robin, within that, what was it, as you see it, having been there for most of that, that the prosecution put forward as their strongest case against her? Well, the trial went on for about six weeks in total. It had meant to go on for 12, but it was cut down significantly. And I suppose Sean Galan, the senior prosecutor, you know, summed it up in his closing speech. He said that the evidence was there, that she travelled to Syria, knowing that there was an Islamic State there, knowing what exactly this group had done in videos she'd seen in people, members of IS she'd spoken to, and that she still made a decision herself to travel thousands of miles to a different country, to Syria, to join what he called was a proto-state. It wasn't a country, it wasn't a democracy, it was a proto-state run by uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and that by travelling there she pledged her allegiance to the Islamic State and in return gave them sustenance and vitality, which he said is the lifeblood of IS, something they cannot live without, that she supported them and was a member in this sense and that, you know, as well as being a member, she also became the very propaganda that IS live off by being a white Western woman who travelled from Ireland over to Syria to join the Islamic State. And on the other side, Lisa Smith has always maintained her innocence and as we've discussed, claimed that she actually was just caught up in all of this. She was looking for a religion. Yeah, obviously, you know, when she converted, she had a very troubled past and she's looking for meaning in life. And her 
point of going over there was that you know she wanted to join an Islamic state, not a terrorist organization, but a state with Muslims, with people of her kind of religious creed, where she could grow up and raise children and raise a family. And she said she traveled over there. She made hijra, which is immigrating, as a part of her religious obligation. That she, you know, she stayed there. She wanted to get away from, you know, gay people, alcohol, gambling, prostitution, and whatever about the morality of that. It's not illegal from her point of view. And that's why she traveled over there. And, you know, she did regret being there. Clearly, she said that in regarded interviews. And the prosecution's case essentially was that, you know, buyer's remorse is not a defense and that she still made an active decision to travel to Syria and be part of the Islamic State. Catherine. We learned a little bit about her relationship with her family from the trial as well. Yes, although none of them, none of her family gave direct evidence, even in her defence. We heard from um, online messages from Facebook um, that Lisa Smith had told her family become, to become Muslims before before it was too late, and, and that she was encouraging them to follow the path that she had taken. And that in another conversation with her sister Lorna, she had said. Um, you know, just become Muslims before it's too late when Lorna had said, you know, we're so worried about you. We're we're spending days crying over you and thinking about where you are. We just, we want you to be safe. Um, Because at that stage, they didn't realise she was in Syria, that they had, it was their belief that she travelled to Tunisia. So they weren't fully aware of just just how radicalised she had become and how far she had gone into this. But even toward her own family, she had this belief that if they didn't, become strict Muslim like herself, that they were to go to the fires of hell. So now a panel of judges have decided that Lisa Smith, despite her denials, was a member of ISIS. What we won't know until July is whether or not she'll go to prison for that offence. Catherine Fegan, the last decade of Lisa Smith's life has been utterly remarkable. Regardless of what happens with that sentencing, what do you think the next chapter holds? Um, one would imagine she'll want to go back to her her family and her daughter in Dundalk. Whether or not she'll stay there uh, remains to be seen, certainly from speaking to people in Dundalk who know her, particularly within the Muslim community. Uh, she's effectively persona non grata there. There was a lot of unwanted attention came on the community, the Muslim community there with this investigation and trial. Uh, a lot of them would say that she had spent her entire life, or the large portion of it, trying to leave Dundalk and find herself in the Islamic State. This was her goal. Um, and now she finds herself back at square one. Um, whether or not she'll remain in Dundalk remains to be seen. That was Catherine Fegan and Robin Schiller, correspondents with the Irish Independent. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips were from BBC News, Primetime on RTE1, RTE News, ITV News, Virgin Media News, CNN and CBS News. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.